How do you learn to cook? How do you approach a new cuisine? Usually there is a number of basic ingredients that keep coming back in recipes you're going to make. Have them at hand, know how to use them, when and in which proportions, learn how to combine them and you'll handle brilliantly this new cuisine. So if you are passionate about Italian and Tuscan cuisine and want to learn the staple ingredients, if you are about to move on your own and you need to stock up your pantry from zero, or if you, like me, enjoy browsing through the pantries of other people, don't miss today's episode. Before the new episode, I would love to thank you for the precious support and all the love you show us, sharing, reviewing and trying the recipes we mention in each episode. I know you're busy, so if you don't want to miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to a podcast. Last but not least, remember that you will find all the links to the recipes we mentioned today in the episode show notes. And don't forget to visit juleskitchen.com for new stories and recipes from Tuscany. And now, let's start! Ciao! My name is Giulia Scarpaleggia. I am a Tuscan-born and bred country girl, a home cook, a food writer, and a photographer. I teach Tuscan cooking classes in my house in the countryside, and I've been sharing honest, reliable Italian recipes for 10 years now, through my cookbooks and my blog, juleskitchen.com. If you love everything about Italian food, big crowded tables and seasonal ingredients, join us and follow this podcast, Cooking with an Italian Accent. Welcome to Cooking with an Italian Accent, episode 23. Today, we'll explore a well-stocked Tuscan pantry. In the 19th episode, we talk about building a cooking repertoire. Well, once you define a number of recipes that you love, that are reliable and express your true soul as a cook, work on your pantry. You have to stock your pantry with the essential ingredients to cook your favorite recipes and to improvise. Store your food so that you can control quantities and expiring dates. Browse through the jars, bags and cans often, not to leave anything behind. Today, I want to go through these that for me are ingredients that are essential in a Tuscan pantry. The first one, the most important for me, the essential ingredient for a Tuscan pantry is extra virgin olive oil. I use extra virgin olive oil for cooking. I choose an average good quality, 100% Italian, possibly organic. Remember that with extra virgin olive oil, you can cook, braise, fry, you can bake with extra virgin olive oil, so don't be scared. We will talk more about extra virgin olive oil in one of the next episodes. For the moment, what you have to know is that you have to have a good extra virgin olive oil for cooking, and then I like to have an excellent extra virgin olive oil, possibly local from a producer I know and I love, or a DOP or a GP from Tuscany or other parts of, of Italy, like Sicily, Puglia, Liguria. So I use this extra virgin olive oil, it's excellent extra virgin olive oil, to drizzle over my food for salads, um, if I want to finish a soup or if I want to drizzle over grilled meat. So I can choose this extra virgin olive oil according to the food that I want to cook. Because every extra virgin olive oil is different, especially if it comes from different parts different parts of Italy. So think about a Sicilian olive oil, a Puglia olive oil, an olive oil from Liguria. They will all be different and they can be paired with different food. In my pantry, I also keep an organic vegetable oil, like sunflower or peanut, that I generally use for frying when I do not want to use extra virgin olive oil. 
I, I want to repeat this. It's not a matter of health or because extra virgin olive oil is not safe. So feel free to fry with extra virgin olive oil. It is rather a matter of taste. So sometimes I don't want uh, the extra virgin olive oil to be overpowering on certain food. So like, I don't know, zucchini flowers. So I might use uh, an organic vegetable oil. But otherwise, extra virgin olive oil is perfectly fine for frying. I use a sunflower oil also when I make torta di ceci, a chickpea cake from the coast of Tuscany. Speaking of fat as a cooking ingredient, in the past they would also have lard that we call strutto, don't get confused with lardo, which is a delicacy, to fry and to preserve food. But we'll talk more about this in today's word of the day. Then there's butter. Butter is not so important in Tuscan cooking, even though there are recipes where I cannot do without it. When I dress ravioli with brown butter and sage, for example, or when I make my chicken liver spread. This is where I want to use butter. Speaking of butter, do you know that you can tell where you are in Italy according to how you make your tomato sauce? Tomatoes, extra virgin olive oil and garlic are typical of the southern part of Italy and also Tuscany. While if you use tomatoes, butter and onion, well, it means that you are in the north of Italy. Marcella Azan's famous sauce is made with tomatoes, butter and onion. And remember, she was originally from the north of Italy. Then there is another Marcella, and it's my grandmother, Nonna Marcella. She makes the tomato sauce with extra virgin olive oil, tomatoes and garlic. She might use a knob of butter just round the taste of pasta al pomodoro, along with grated parmigiano. But that's to finish the pasta, not to cook the tomato sauce. The second important ingredient after extra virgin olive oil is salt. Italy is surrounded by the sea, so we have always had plenty of salt to preserve our food, our prosciutto, pork cheek, old pecorino, but even tomato paste. Even though our bread is typically bland, so sciocco, without salt, don't worry, we are quite generous when it comes to use salt in recipes. I've always felt completely okay in using the needed amount of salt in food. But after reading Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by Samin Nosrat, I feel even more empowered to use salt when needed, in the right amount, in the right moment, to give flavor, to make a dish. Now let's move to the third ingredient, which more than an ingredient is a category of ingredients, herbs and spices. We do not use many spices in Tuscan cooking. Black pepper is definitely the most used, from curing the prosciutto to sprinkling over cannellini beans or chickpeas. Nutmeg, one of the most loved spices in the Renaissance time, which at that time was worth more than gold, is still used especially for gnocchi, bechamel sauce and with spinach. It is mainly used for savory dishes, so just imagine the surprise the first time I felt so brave to use nutmeg in a pumpkin pie. Well, it changed my life. Now I like to use nutmeg also when I make cakes. Well, along with black pepper and nutmeg, I also use juniper berries for game meat, fennel seeds or dried fennel flowers for pork, and any seeds for some old-fashioned cake. Obviously, I have a well-stocked spice cupboard with satar and coriander seeds that are maybe my favorite foreign spices. And I use these spices when I, when I feel like experimenting, not in my everyday cooking or when I cook Tuscan food. So what about the herbs? In the Tuscan cuisine, we have a sacred triad, sage, rosemary and garlic, which we use for roast meat, from a whole roast chicken to roast beef, from stuffed 
turkey breast to porchetta. We use them with fish, but also with focaccia. When it comes to herbs, we usually use fresh herbs, almost never dried, with only one exception, oregano. Oregano is always dried, it's never fresh. But oregano is also more typical of the south of Italy. People in the south become very specific when they talk about oregano. I inherited the southern love for dried oregano from my granddad Biagio, who was from Basilicata, which is a region, a tiny region in between Campania and Puglia. But when I visit Tommy's family in Puglia, I always make sure to buy some local dried oregano. And if you go to the market, they will ask you from which coast of Puglia you want the oregano, because of course it's different. It's different the climate, it's different the kind of soil, so the oregano is different. And I just buy both of them because I love both of them. We usually have rosemary and sage in the garden, even in winter, but sometimes we use a shortcut, which is my mom's Tuscan rub. It's, it's made with salt and herbs. So it's salt, black pepper, sage, rosemary, garlic. Sometimes I like to add juniper berries or thyme, but it's as simple as that. She blends all the herbs together, not dried, fresh, and then she mixes them with salt and pepper until she reaches that point of green that she likes. So it's quite green. It's more herbs than salt. And then she keeps the salt in a jar on, in the cupboard and we, we use it when we need it. So with fish, with meat, with focaccia, it's very handy to have it because sometimes you don't want to go outside. Sometimes it's winter, we don't have fresh herbs. So it's a, it's a good shortcut. And you find the recipe for this rub salt on the blog. The fourth ingredient is dried beans, usually cannellini beans, but also borlotti or red beans from Lucca or fagioli del purgatorio or even fagioli zolfini, zolfini beans, which are the most delicate, creamy and expensive beans from Casentino. They are known as zolfini as their color reminds that of sulfur, which is zolfo in Italian, hence zolfini. But along with beans, I feel the urge to stock my pantry with dried chickpeas and lentils, even though beans are definitely the most used pulses in my family. After an overnight soak, I simmer them on the lowest flame for about two hours, or more or less, it depends on the beans, until they are buttery and soft. Then I simply drizzle them with extra virgin olive oil, salt and pepper if I don't want to use them in a recipe, as in fagioli all'uccelletto. So as you can see, this is one of the dishes that you can make just with the ingredients that you find in your pantry. But when we make pizza or we bake bread in our wood burning oven outside, I always cook a pot of beans there. After my dad removes all the coals from the oven, after the bread and the cake, I put a pot of dried beans. No soaking in this case, with plenty of water and I keep them in the oven overnight to cook. In the morning, you will find the creamiest beans you have ever tasted. They only need extra virgin olive oil and salt. Now, let's move on to the fifth ingredient, or again, fifth category, because now I want to talk about flour. Flour, which is wheat flour, chickpea flour, chestnut flour, corn flour. I cannot imagine a pantry without flour. So, but which kind of flour? So without getting too specific or geeky about flour, and I can talk for hours about flour, I have several different wheat flour, more or less refined from zero to whole wheat, and then I have a strong flour for bread, a weak flour for short crust, and biscotti. So what does it mean, strong flour, weak flour? A strong flour is a flour which has a high amount of gluten 
and therefore of proteins, while a weak flour is a flour which has a low amount of gluten and proteins. So I would use a strong one for bread, a weak one for shortcrust and biscotti because I want something crumbly. I also stock uh, spelt flour, rye flour and durum wheat flour, which I use for bread, or durum wheat semolina, which I use for pasta. Then I have chickpea flour, and I use that to make torta di ceci. You will find the recipe on the blog. Don't miss this. It's vegan, gluten-free, totally traditional from the coast of Tuscany. Then chestnut flour, or farina dolce, sweet flour. I use this to make necci, a kind of chestnut pancakes, castagnaccio, a chestnut cake, and I use it in pasta and biscotti. So when we talk about chestnut flour, we have to talk about price. You know, in the past, this was uh, one of the ingredients that poor people would use. The poor people in the mountains, they could not afford wheat flour. So they would make chestnut flour from the dried chestnuts. So it was, you know, considered a flour, a poor ingredient. Now, if you want to buy a good organic chestnut flour, it can cost four, five times a good wheat flour. That's because it has become a delicacy. It's actually a very good flour, sweet, delicate, very versatile, as you can use it in different recipes. But it is extremely expensive and it is difficult to find a very good flour. So usually I buy flour from Mugello or from Appennino, Pistoiese, or from Garfagnana and Lunigiana, which are the areas here in Tuscany where you can find a very good and excellent chestnut flour. Last but not least, in a Tuscan pantry, you usually find also corn flour or farina gialla, yellow flour, which is used for polenta, even though it is not as common as in the northeast of Italy. I tend to buy a local ancient variety from Garfagnana, it's another area of Tuscany, the Formenton Ottofile, which is usually rest refined and so tasty. Flour is the corner store of so many recipes, from pasta to cakes, biscotti, and of course, bread. So this is why flour is so important for us. And now let's talk about bread. Bread is definitely one of the staple ingredients of Tuscan cooking, as fresh bread. So if you think about pane e companatico, which means bread and something that you would eat with bread. Bread has always been the staple ingredient for Tuscan cooking for centuries. Our bread was made, is made, still made without salt. So it's the perfect complement to our prosciutto, to an aged pecorino. That's why the bread is without salt, because it can complement perfectly the flavor. Then it doesn't get moldy because it doesn't have salt inside. So what happens, this bread becomes stale very easily and very quickly. With stale bread, another staple ingredient of Tuscan cooking, you can make so many recipes and they all belong to the Tuscan cucina povera, so the cuisine of poor people of the countryside. But we talk extensively about bread and stale bread in the Tuscan food culture in the third episode. So if you want to learn more about bread, go and listen to the third episode. But then there's another form of bread that is usually in our pantry. So you have the fresh bread, you have the stale bread, and then you have breadcrumbs. I can't live without homemade breadcrumbs, made from stale bread. I use the breadcrumbs for stuffing, to roast vegetables in the oven with capers, parmigiano and herbs, to sprinkle on pasta once they're toasted, 
where to meatballs or meatloaf. So this is a very important ingredient that you can make with stale bread. So no leftovers, but a very precious ingredient. And we'll talk more about stale bread and breadcrumbs in a recipe at the end of this episode. The seventh ingredient, which is for me is very important, is eggs. Eggs are another ingredient that I have in my pantry. We do not eat eggs for breakfast in Italy, even though I might have them once a week in the morning, as they fill me up and I can work until lunchtime without being hungry. But we use eggs for fresh pasta, for cakes and biscotti, to make a frittata, fried, al tegamino we call them, poached and hard-boiled. And we use them as main courses for lunch or for dinner. In more than a school trip, my packed lunch was a panino with a frittata, made in the morning and immediately stashed in between two slices of bread by my mom, so that the oil and the warmth of the frittata could soak up the bread and meld the two ingredients in the best packed lunch ever. So this was maybe one of the best memories of school trip, the panino with frittata. Tommaso and my dad just built a chicken coop, so finally we'll have again our fresh eggs. We have now five chickens, and you'll hear more about them, I'm sure, not just for ingredients, but because Tommaso is madly in love with these chickens. The eighth ingredient, or again, eighth category of ingredients that are in my pantry, are charcuterie and cheese. Nowadays, we tend to keep our cheese and charcuterie in the fridge. But in the past, when every family in the countryside would slaughter a pig at the beginning of winter, prosciutto, salame, cured pork, chicken, lard, they were kept in the pantry and frugally consumed throughout the following months. It was the same for cheese. It was often bought fresh and then aged in the cellar. Here it was often pecorino, sheep milk cheese. I am probably influenced by those old times, but in my pantry or in my fridge, I tend to keep a Weather Parmigiano Reggiano or even aged pecorino that I use for pasta or that I nibble on when I feel it rather peckish. And then I like to have a hunk of prosciutto that we slice from time to time when we need it. And then sometimes also some cured pork chick to add a flavor to my dishes. The ninth ingredient, which for me is very important, is preserved tomatoes. Even though tomatoes are definitely more typical of a southern cuisine, my family has always preserved tomatoes during summer for winter. Tomato puree, la passata, and tomato sauce with celery, carrot and onion, la pomarola. But they would also make canned peeled tomatoes, i pelati, and tomato paste, concentrato di pomodoro, something we tend to buy now as it takes forever to make it. A bottle of tomato puree solves a quick dinner if you make a pasta al pomodoro with a shower of grated parmigiano reggiano or even a uovo al pomodoro when you fry a couple of eggs in tomato sauce. The tenth ingredient for me is dry pasta. Yes, last but not least, pasta. You can't even imagine how many times I've been asked if Italians eat only fresh pasta made from scratch. Making fresh pasta from scratch is a poetry. These are activities that anchor you to your safe place. They link you to a line of country cooks. But the artisanal skills of making fresh pasta do not hide anymore a daily routine of repeated gestures. I asked my grandmother, 91 years old and still cooking up a storm in the kitchen, and she assured me that fresh pasta was not a daily matter. During the Second World War, in this village of 50 souls that I've always called home, and where today there are just houses, vegetable gardens and chicken coops, there used to be a ballroom, a political club, a bowling ground and a tiny grocery store that would sell loose rice and pasta. There was a little choice, just penne or spaghetti. 
And she told me that you would choose your favorite shape and then you would bring the, your pasta home, knit it wrapped in a yellow paper. Grandmother, nonna, she would make homemade pasta from scratch once or twice a week, usually tagliolini or tagliarini, as she calls them. She would do this because living in the countryside, they had the pros of having fresh eggs from your chickens and flower stock in your pantry. She would make fresh pasta for her family and for the priest of the village. She would make it especially for broth. The other days were all about soups, polenta and dry pasta. My mom also remembers that in the 60s in San Gimignano, the loose pasta was sold in a small grocery store where you could choose your favorite shape from the wooden drawers of a large cupboard. So in our family tradition, fresh pasta from scratch is when there is something to celebrate, like Christmas or a Sunday gathering with relatives and friends. In all the other occasions, we all buy dry pasta without feeling guilty and choosing the shape that best suits a certain seasoning or sauce. Opening the pantry door and finding some packs of pasta waiting for you is reassuring. It means that in less than half an hour, you can cook a good meal choosing those ingredients that will become the dressing of your pasta. And you can be inspired by tradition, creativity, seasonality, or simply by what you have in your pantry and in your fridge. This has always been my favorite way of cooking, as the scarcity of available ingredients is stimulating. It's pushing you to create something good with what you have. Pasta for us is definitely more common than rice, barley or farro, but I like to keep them in my pantry because I usually rotate them in our weekly menu. So I gave you a list of 10 ingredients or 10 categories of ingredients. And these are the basic ingredients we can find in many Tuscan kitchen. Though I can define myself a pantry enthusiast, as you might have understood from the 17th episode about summer preserving. So when I open my pantry, I see also bags of sugar, baking powder, anchovies preserved in salt or in oil, tiny capers, almonds, walnuts, canned tuna, sun-dried tomatoes, raisins, uh, what else, dried mushrooms, especially porcini, and then of course homemade jams and marmalades, then several jars of giardiniera, which is my collection of summer pickled vegetables preserved in oil, then what else, baby artichokes in oil, home-cured olives, and all the other ingredients that help me to improvise a meal when I'm late, or when my fridge is empty, or when I have some improvised guest on when we are so unusually hungry for lunch and we eat all that I have planned to have for dinner. This way of cooking, picking ingredients from the pantry, mixing and matching the flavors, is simple, satisfying, liberating and creative. You can't even imagine how many tuna salads with hard-boiled eggs, delicious plates of pasta, frittate, but also sweet treats are made just by marrying some of the ingredients in my pantry. Today, I want to share one of my favorite pastas, made with ingredients I always keep in my pantry, and that you should too. Let's make together a pasta with anchovies, capers, and toasted breadcrumbs. So this is a very simple recipe, something I like to do when I don't have other ideas, but I got these ingredients in my pantry. The first thing you have to do is bring to the boil a pot of water. Now we're going to measure pasta. I like to use whole wheat pasta or farro pasta because I like the flavor um, and it's also healthier, a healthier choice for me. So I usually use whole wheat pasta. Uh, since I'm making pasta for two people, I'm going to measure a right amount of pasta, about 80 grams per person if someone is not on a diet. 
Okay. Now let's take a pan and here in this pan I'm going to pour some extra virgin olive oil. Let's say two tablespoons per person. I'm going to add one clove of garlic. The clove of garlic is with the skin on. We call this in camisha, it means with the shirt on, because I'm going to cook the garlic in extra virgin olive oil and with the shirt on, with the skin on, it's not going to burn. Then I'm going to add anchovy fillets. These are anchovies preserved in extra virgin olive oil, so they don't need to be rinsed. If you have anchovies preserved in salt, rinse them before adding them into the olive oil. Then I added capers. These are tiny, tiny capers that are packed with salt. So I rinsed them, dried them, and added them into the olive oil. As last thing, I'm going to add some chili pepper. Just a hint, but I like the flavor of chili pepper in this pasta. The pasta water is boiling, so I'm going to add salt. A handful of coarse salt. Let's add the pasta now, and this is going to cook for about 10 minutes, as long as it's requested on the packaging of the pasta, because I want to cook the pasta al dente. While the pasta is cooking, now it's time to make the dressing for the pasta. Let's start heating the olive oil. So we have in this pan the anchovies, the capers, the chili pepper, the garlic, and the olive oil, of course. We are going to heat the olive oil and we have to do this at a medium-low flame so that the anchovies can melt, can slowly melt, without burning. Once that the anchovies are dissolved into the olive oil, just turn off the heat. Now, let's take another pan, and here we are going to add two tablespoons of breadcrumbs. This is real bread, stale bread, that I just blended into breadcrumbs, but you can use the breadcrumbs that you have at home. Now we are going to toast the breadcrumbs with a tablespoon of extra virgin olive oil. On medium fire, toast the breadcrumbs until they are golden, and then turn off the heat. Now drain the pasta al dente, and pour the pasta in the pan with anchovies, olive oil, capers, chili pepper, and garlic. Now it's time to toss the pasta. I usually first toss the pasta for a minute, then I add breadcrumbs. When the pasta is nicely covered with this flavorful olive oil, I'm going to add the breadcrumbs, mix again, and the pasta is ready to be eaten. If you have it, you can add some chopped parsley, or I also like also some grated orange zest, fresh orange zest, which is flavorful and nice with the oranges, with the anchovies. Now, ready? I think I can try the pasta and see if it's good or not. Mm. I love it. So before closing this episode, would you like to share your pantry? Like jars, cans, your essential ingredients? Snap a picture or write about it and share it with me via email or with a post or a story on Instagram using the hashtag cooking with an Italian accent and tagging Jules Kitchen. Word of the day. Learn Italian language of food, word after word. Every year, more than 200 people join our cooking classes. Speaking with them, I made a small dictionary of important words and pronunciations that can help you navigate through the immense world of Italian food. So if you love Italian language as much as you love Italian cooking, these are a few words that can be useful for you. Today's word is lardo, 
L-A-R-D-O. Do not mistake lardo for lard. Lard is pork fat, rendered and clarified. In Italy, we call it strutto, which means melted. It is a cooking fat, creamy, almost like butter. It is still used in some traditional recipes and in schiacciata alla fiorentina, which is a carnival treat from Florence, in short crust for crostate, and to fry, especially meat. Rabbit is incredibly delicious when fried in lard. It is also used to preserve food, as for fegatelli di maiale, which are pork liver pieces, spiced with fennel, salt and pepper, wrapped in the fat net which is around the pig intestines and cooked until golden. Lardo, instead, is cured meat, is a delicacy. It is the fat from the back of the pig, which is traditionally cured for months in marble basins with salt, pepper and a mix of herbs and aromatics. You slice it as you would do with a prosciutto, and you can use it on toasted bread or to wrap lean meat, but also fish, dry shrimps for example, to cook them and to make them moister and more flavorful. I have a recipe for pork medallions wrapped in lard on my blog for example. This is the end of today's episode of our podcast, Cooking with an Italian Accent. If you have questions about Italian and Tuscan cooking, just email me at jules at juleskitchen.com or join our Facebook group, Cooking with Jules Kitchen. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to a podcast and share it with your friends. You will find all the links to the recipes we mentioned today in this episode show notes. Don't forget to visit juleskitchen.com for new stories and recipes from Tuscany. Ciao!